Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's mid-January 2024, and despite the sudden attack of very cold weather, I'm trying something I've never done before. I've come to a local farm, which offers the chance to collect your own organic eggs from a beautiful flock of local chickens. We're lucky enough to have a few of these not far from where we live and it's a real experience to make your way down a bumpy farm track and spend some time with these fluffy clucking girls. Of course, the delicious free-range eggs are a nice bonus too. It's great to see exactly where the eggs come from and how happy the chickens are fussing and gossiping away to each other. Aside from being a really nice way to acquire eggs... The experience got me thinking about the egg as a symbol of potential. Inside this fragile shell, something is contained. And until we crack it, we really don't know what we're going to find. New life, perhaps. Or maybe just an ingredient for cooking. At this time of year, when the days are short and dark and the nights are long and bitterly cold, we need to hold on to the idea of new life. Spring will come again, the light will return... And whatever's sleeping inside our egg will be hatched. My story today starts in a farmyard full of chickens, but the tale follows no ordinary egg. So fill your basket with warm, fresh eggs, dodge the good-natured peck of the hens, then gather round the campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Three Ravens podcast. 
I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm swishing my mermaid's tail and swimming away with the church bell while my co-host Martin Vaux tries to prize it from my hand. Eleanor, give it back! <laughs> We've been experiencing a blast of cold weather here in the raven's nest at the top of the hill. So Martin and I have been trying to stay wrapped up as much as possible but we've had a few super early starts recently, which have been quite difficult. Yes, I am much more of a night raven than an early sparrow. I don't mind waking up early, but I do find it difficult to leave the house in the dark in freezing conditions. It's the worst. Still, there is certainly something to be said for being able to watch the sunrise and the sky fill with light. Yeah. There's something about it at this time of year which looks particularly dramatic as orange light shows up the silhouettes of the bare trees. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm less fussed, I'll be honest. <laughs> you know, <laughs> happily still dreaming that would be better <laughs> now we've been back to our usual county by county exploration of england and releases of bonus episodes we just had eleanor's dying arts episode about traditional fan making and later this week we're looking forward to our january three ravens film club Yes, this month's film is Cemetery Man. So if you've watched it and you'd like to send us your thoughts for inclusion in the episode, please get them to us today. Our flash fiction competition is still running and it'll be open until the end of the series after episode 39. So if you've got a story of up to a thousand words you'd like to tell us, please send it over to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. We've had some great correspondence this week, which we'll get to at the end, but we also have a wonderful new Patreon to celebrate. Thank you so much, Tony. All hail Tony, King of Patreon! If you'd like to find out what the Patreon is all about and gain access to all our episodes ad-free, exclusive content and our monthly newsletter, please visit patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. Subscriptions start from just $3 a month and we'd love to welcome you into the conspiracy of ravens. We would indeed. So, Eleanor, I always think think that we need lots of extra celebrations and festivals during January and February because they're dark and cold and generally a bit difficult. Have we got anything special we can do today to justify our knees up and the doing of something daft? Well, we're releasing this episode on the 22nd of January and you're going to like this one. It's St. Vincent's Day. Well, I've got to say, I don't think I've ever heard of St. Vincent. Was he a particularly significant saint? We don't hear of him much today, but he used to be quite popular in rural weather predictions. Oh, one of them. There's a rhyme of indeterminate date which suggests sunshine on St. Vincent's Day means good weather for the rest of the year, which goes like this. Remember on St. Vincent's Day, if the sun his beams display, be sure to mark the transient beam which through the casement sheds a gleam, for tis a token bright and clear of prosperous weather all the year. Oh, that's nice. Although I've got to say, there aren't currently any transient beams shedding gleams through our casement, so I'm a little bit worried. And uh, why, dare I ask, was St. Vincent especially associated with sunny weather? Unclear, but let me tell you about his life because he had an absolutely horrid time. Okay. We owe what we know of Vincent of Saragossa to the poet Prudentius, who wrote a series of lyric poems about the deaths of Roman and Spanish martyrs. I can neither confirm nor deny if Prudentius liberally used his poetic license. But if he did, he certainly liked inflicting hideous tortures on his Christian martyrs. I mean... On the one side, that sounds terrible, but on the other, it sounds quite exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, the story goes that Vincent was the helper and spokesman to Bishop Valerius, who was Bishop of Saragossa in Spain in the 4th century. Valerius had a speech impediment, so Vincent helped him with preaching around Saragossa and uh -huh. translating for yeah. people who couldn't be bothered to pay proper attention. 
all was going fairly well and their diocese was flourishing until Emperor Diocletian decided that all this Christianity in Spain was really not to his liking. So Vincent and Valerius were both arrested by Dacian, the governor of Valencia. In classic style, the Roman governor asked them to renounce their faith and show that they'd done so by throwing the Holy Scriptures into a fire. Well, I'm going to guess that they didn't much like that idea. They did not. (laughs) And apparently the way Vincent told Dacian that he wouldn't renounce his faith was so irritating that he was subjected to a truly horrendous series of tortures, including, but not limited to, iron hooks, racks, red-hot gridirons, and being forced to lie his horrifically wounded body on broken and pottery and salt. Well, that's horrible. However, <laughs> he was so peaceful and uncomplaining during all of this that the person who was torturing him was persuaded to repent his sins and convert to Christianity. Well, I suppose if anything's going to do it, then that degree mm. of grace is Absolutely. probably going to convince you, isn't it? You're going to really like the next bit, though. Okay. Poor Vincent did die of his terrible wounds. Well, surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. But after his death, his body was protected by a flock of ravens Ooh. who continued to protect the shrine his followers had built for him after his body was recovered. There is actually some basis in historical fact for this as well, for the ravens, that is. Yeah. So the 12th century geographer Abu Abdallah Muhammad al-Idrisi, who is such an interesting person, look him up. Okay. He noticed the constant ravens around the site when he visited and named it the Church of Ravens in his book Pleasant Journeys into Faraway Lands. Oh, that's amazing, the Church of the Ravens. Vincent's body sadly no longer lies with the ravens because it was taken to Lisbon Cathedral, but somehow his left arm ended up up in the cathedral in Valencia, where it can be viewed today. And do we have any idea why his arm was separated from the rest of him? For that, we'll need to find out why St. Peter has over 30 recorded toes. Well, that's because he's a mutant. Easy, <laughs> easy to answer. And how should we celebrate poor, unfortunate St. Vincent and his legion of ravens? Perhaps not at all if you're engaged in any sort of dry, dryish, or damp January. <laughs> but the Chronicle of English Folk Customs suggests he was a saint associated with excessive drinking, so there's that. Oh, well, in which case, cheers. <laughs> and I think we'd better preempt the county criers before they get too heavily stuck into the cocktails. Oh, my goodness, yes. Please don't be tempted, you lot. Not before you've rung us into Herefordshire. <laughs> is located in the West Midlands in the historic Welsh Marches. It's bordered by Shropshire to the north, Worcestershire to the east, Gloucestershire to the south and the Welsh counties of Powys and Monmouthshire to the west. As always, there's a map showing its precise location and expanded information for the places we're talking about on this episode on the blog at threeravenspodcast.com. And the first thing to say about Herefordshire is that it is possibly the prettiest county we've talked about. Ooh, shots fired, Eleanor. Are you making a big claim for Herefordshire? I think I am. It's well worth looking at some pictures because, honestly, it is so incredibly picturesque. And have you ever actually visited it? I have not, but I would really like to. Have you? Uh, Not that I can think of. I mean, I don't think I've actually really ventured to many 
if any of the counties that border Wales, which is nothing personal. Life has just kind of never led me that way. I've always wanted to go to the Hay Literary Festival, oh, yeah. which is in Herefordshire. Oh, cool. Um, so that's that's definitely on our bucket slash barrel list yeah. to visit. Herefordshire is one of the most rural counties in England, so its natural beauty is very apparent. The centre of the county is quite flat and is crossed by the beautiful River Wye and its tributary, the Lug. But the county is surrounded by hills, the Malvern Hills on the border of Worcestershire and the evocatively named Black Mountains range on the Powys border, Whoa. where the Black Mountain can be found. Well, that sounds incredibly gothic and quite exciting. <laughs> there has been some disagreement as to whether the Black Mountain belongs to England or Wales, as it's right on the border. Sure. It's crossed by Offa's Dyke Path at the summit, and that loosely follows the border boundary. So I can see how the question arises. Yeah, but I guess people don't really start land disputes over who owns a mountain. No, although I do think there's a certain amount of flex to saying you've got the Black Mountain. Yeah, and I bet there are some legends attached to it as well. There certainly are, not least associated with Jack or John of Kent, a local folk figure who we will be returning to. Okay. But I thought I'd talk a little bit about the history and notable sites of Herefordshire first before we sink our teeth into its big, juicy slice of folklore. That sounds very promising. As you might expect from its location, Herefordshire was at one time under Welsh control before the West Saxons settled there. Welsh influences can still be seen in the survival of place names, and until the 19th century, the Welsh language could widely be heard in parts of the county, and Welsh is still spoken there today. Sure. There are examples of early Welsh Bibles which have been found there, and things like plaques and documents in churches also in Welsh. Well, that's interesting. The Saxons gained a foothold during the 7th century, however, when Herefordshire became part of the Kingdom of Magonset, which covered the area between Wales and Mercia, but it was later absorbed into Mercia, <laughs> and the area was well and truly annexed in the 8th century when a certain King Offa built a certain dike. Now, we've talked about Offa's dike before, but just to give a brief rundown, it's a linear earthwork which runs for, I think, something incredible like 150 miles between England and Wales. There's an absolute ton of legends associated with Offa's dike, and it crosses the boundaries of several counties, so it's cropped up on Three Ravens before. As Offa was frequently in conflict with the Welsh, the dike was intended both to mark the border of Mercian territory, which... I should add, had not been formally agreed Ooh. and may have also acted as a line of defence against yeah, the Welsh. Yeah, but it can be visited today and there's a very long walk you can do, not all on the same day, of course, but that follows along the path of Office Dyke. Now, you might think that Herefordshire was fairly safe from incursions from the Danes in the 9th century being I, I all the way so. over on yeah. the other side of England, but that is not the case. Oh. The Danes sailed up the Severn and the Wye and were able to access the south of the county. So much of the latter part of the 800s involved constant battles with Vikings. It's crazy. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? And by 877, the Saxon king Bergred had been replaced by the Danish king Chelwulf, not to be confused with our Saint Chelwulf from the last episode. It's funny, That's isn't it, with these names? They seem really unusual when you first read about them. Then they start cropping up everywhere. I know, I'm expecting to meet a Chelwulf down the shop. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe there's one just lives over there. Yeah. <laughs> 
The Danes and the Saxons were essentially at constant loggerheads until the conquest, and there was also consistent border warfare with the Welsh. So despite being incredibly beautiful, Herefordshire has a history of being squabbled over. Well, if it's that pretty and desirable, it's not surprising, I guess. <laughs> it wasn't until the conquest that things settled down a little, but even that wasn't exactly plain sailing. Oh, no. So does that mean we get a load of like Norman power bases? Do we get any castles in Herefordshire? Definitely. There are sites of Norman fortresses at Hereford, Wigmore, Webley, Eworth, Harold, Clifford, Caldicott and Donington. Whoa. But Billy the Conqueror left subjugation of Herefordshire to his friend, William Fitz Osborne. And how did that go for William Fitz Osborne? Not so fabulously, <laughs> because Fitz Osborne encountered Edric the Wild. Legendary Edric the Wild. Now, we've talked about him before. He led the English resistance to the conquest along the Welsh border, basically, didn't he? He did, and he caused immense trouble for two years, including burning down Shrewsbury Castle in Shropshire and generally making a right old nuisance of himself. And just to remind people, he's also associated with some awesome folk legends, including that of the Wild Hunt. And there's another great story about Edric discovering a house of a succubi in the woods, one of whom he marries and he has a son with. The human-succubus relationship isn't always one we see ending well, but this one was apparently very successful. <laughs> Despite his troublemaking ways, Edric didn't actually meet a bad end. It seems that he finally conceded power to William and even ended up fighting for him in later wars, including the invasion of Scotland. And there's no definitive record of his death either, which may be why the Wild Hunt legends began. Yeah, I mean, one of the legends is that he is then locked inside this cave with mm -hmm. all of his knights, like a big trick or, or, you know, kind of conspiracy against him. But yeah, we spoke about that on a previous episode. Anyway, he's a very interesting character, isn't he? Edric? Yes, he is. And well worth a revisit, I think. So in Herefordshire, there was a bit of drama during the anarchy. Oh, biddly, 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 wow! The anarchy guitar solo has stuck, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> Hereford Castle and Webley Castle were held for Matilda, yeah. but were captured by Stephen in 1138. And that was not the end of political conflict in Herefordshire, too. In 1326, Parliament actually assembled in Hereford to depose Edward II, Whoa. whose death at Berkeley Castle in Gloucestershire you talked about a couple of weeks ago. So where did Herefordshire stand in the Wars of the Roses then? They were pinning white roses to their lapels and supporting the Yorkists. Really? Due to the influence of the Mortimer family, descendants of the Mortimer who had risen against Edward II. Right. But in the Civil War, I'm sorry to say that Herefordshire Herefordshire largely supported the Royalists. Well, now, come on, Eleanor, this has got to put you off Herefordshire a little bit. Well, a little bit, especially as apparently Hereford people did complain about the Crown's illegal taxes, but anti-Puritan sentiments ultimately won out. Oh, dear. There were a couple of sieges, including of Hereford, Goodrich and Ledbury. Now, something that's come out of all this history is the need for strong fortifications to protect the county from all this conflict. So I'm guessing there have to be, to this day, lots of castles or at least some former castles. Oh, got some nice Yes, Hereford Castle is sadly no more and hasn't been for quite some time. But as our first alternative, we have the other Hampton Court. Yeah, now I've heard about this one. Sometimes Google throws it up. Yes, 
there is another Hampton Court in Herefordshire, mm. also known as Hampton Court Castle. It's actually a castellated country house dating from the 15th century and has nothing to do with Henry VIII or the other Hampton Court. Which is much bigger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it does, however, feature a secret tunnel and an 150-year-old wisteria arch. Oh, well, I mean, you got to love a secret tunnel, haven't you? Not to mention a wisteria arch. No, true, true, very true. <laughs> we also have the magnificent ruin of Goodrich Castle, scene of one of the most famous sieges of the Civil War, and Croft Castle, dating from 1085, but in spectacularly good condition. Wow, that's old, isn't it? It is. Then there's what's left of Wigmore Castle, which was built at a site of great strategic importance because it's halfway between two rivers, but it fell derelict after the Civil War. Yeah. As always, we've put pictures of all of these on the blog so you can enjoy a virtual castle tour as you listen. And how about holy sites? Do we have priories? Do we have abbeys? Do we have a cathedral? Of course. Hereford Cathedral is a fabulous example of a mixture of styles as it was renovated and added to across the centuries. Cool. It's also home to the largest library of chained books in the world. Wow. So books so valuable or maybe so dangerous that they have to be kept chained to their cases. Or they've just been really naughty books and they need to be locked <laughs> away. No, you're, you're in detention. You can't come outside, you naughty book. <laughs> Possibly that too. We might also visit Door Abbey, confusingly situated in the village of Abbey Door, which was a former Cistercian <laughs> priory. <laughs> confused. <laughs> and has now been repurposed as the parish church, though some parts of it are in ruins. There's a beautiful Norman church dedicated to St. Mary and St. David in Kilpeck, which is home to an incredible collection of carvings in red sandstone. And the Priory Church at Leominster, which was previously the site of a religious house, which was a Benedictine priory with nuns and also a Saxon monastery at various points during history. Ooh, so it seems like there's actually tons and tons to see. Mm. Oh, that's exciting. And now we've talked about Offa's Dyke already, but there are other very early earthworks and barrows, aren't there, as well? Yes, we have the Sutton Walls Hill Fort, north of Hereford, which some historians have identified as being the Palace of Offa. And we know it was used by the Saxons and the Romans under the leadership of the wonderfully named Ostorius Scapula. <laughs> and it's also been posited as the place where Offa murdered Ethelbert of East Anglia in 794. Wow. I mean, some of those hill forts. Like, we talk about them every once in a while, don't we, as they're just kind of big hills now, but they used to be so important and all kinds of weird and wonderful things happened at them. Oh, yes. And the ones where you can sort of see the outline of where the fort would have been are so interesting. Yeah, I because they, they were kind of part of religious life. Life as much as they were a practical defence system. Yeah, ritual sites as yeah. well as these incredible fortresses. And very often when they do decide to dig into them, they find all of these fascinating things that have happened to people, sometimes ritualised death, certainly a lot of Roman slaughter, because mm. of course the Romans had these weapons to launch things over walls and so on to kill people inside these hill forts. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, Austria's scapula actually led an invasion of this hill fort, which was more like a massacre. Yeah. So there's lots of examples from that particular incident. I mean, it happens all over the country. Like, often in England, you'll look at one of those big hills going, well, that's clearly not a natural hill. And if you just do a little bit of research, you'll find out that, yeah, time ago, there's lots and lots (laughs) of dead people there, yeah. Yeah. There's also a Neolithic tomb known as Arthur's Stone between Hereford and Hay on Wye. Arthur as in King Arthur? Yes. With a stone portal and an elongated mound, which, according to legend, was either built to mark the location of one of King Arthur's battles or the place where Arthur killed a giant 
or a place where Arthur stopped to pray. <laughs> it could have been all of them, right? Nobody claims it's actually the tomb of Arthur, though. <laughs> no, no, well, that's good. Okay. But yeah, I like the idea that, you know, we're not sure what it's for. Something to do with Arthur. Definitely something to do with King Arthur. <laughs> all right, Eleanor, I can see that you're champing at the bit to talk about folklore. You've practically got fairies braiding your hair, and I think a large black dog has actually just shot out from under your skirt. Let's have it. Oh, boy. Herefordshire is an amazing source of excellent folk legends of all sorts. Really? Creatures, witches, ghosts, mermaids, dragons, wizards, the devil. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> to kick us off, I'll start with a chap I briefly alluded to earlier, the mysterious Jacka Kent. Now, I'm presuming he is not to be confused with Jacka Lent. No, we won't be beating up Jacka Kent during our period of Lenten abstinence. Excellent. But if he's Jack of Kent, what on earth is he doing on the other side of the country, midway up Wales in Herefordshire. I think it's actually a surname. And he also, he might have been Jack or John of Gwent, uh, okay. even, because he's referred to as being Welsh and was certainly based in and around the Welsh marches. He's sometimes called a wizard and sometimes a cleric and was most famous for challenging the devil to various bets. Oh, excellent. There's a recurrent theme in which the devil very much doesn't read the small print of these bargains. Mm -hmm. For example, Jack bet the devil that he couldn't build a bridge in a single night, and the devil agreed to do it if Jack would give him the first soul that crossed the bridge. I feel like we've heard a variation on this one before that might have a waggy tail involved. We have, and this one goes the same way. The devil built the bridge, and Jack threw a bone across it so a hungry dog would cross, Mm -hmm. and the devil was forced to accept the soul of the dog. Yeah, classic. Then there's another one in which Jack wanted his crops to prosper. So he asked the devil if he would help things along by regulating the weather, you know, producing sure. the appropriate amount of sun and rain. Yeah. In exchange, Jack promised the devil half the crop, either the top of the crop or the bottoms. Mm-hmm. The devil chose the tops, assuming Jack was going to plant wheat. But Jack planted turnips instead. What? So the devil ended up with just leaves. Clever Jack! Pretty what? annoyed that he wasn't going to be able to enjoy a lovely turnip stew. The devil chose bottoms the next year, but Jack, of course, planted wheat instead. So, you know, firstly, obviously I feel sorry for the devil here, which you're not meant to. But also, come on, devil, you should have seen that coming. Yeah, after the first year. Yeah. <laughs> Jack's games with the devil are also suggested as the reason for some topographical features in Herefordshire and the surrounding area. He bet the devil that Sugarloaf Mountain was taller than the Malvern Hills. Sorry, Sugarloaf Mountain? Yeah, it's a mountain. Oh, it's it's such a cute it? name. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think because it looks like a, a loaf of sugar. Yeah, got that's that great. But the devil tried to cheat by putting more soil on top of the Malvern Hills. Yeah. But his basket of soil broke and dropped all of the soil, forming a lump. So many of the nobles and bobbles of England are down to the devil making terrible gambling choices, aren't they? <laughs> they really are. <laughs> In addition to Jack, there's another Herefordshire cunning man called Jenkins, who pops up in quite a few different tales, actually. He apparently called himself the Master of Witches. (laughs) Jenkins, the Master of Witches. It's quite the claim. (laughs) But supposedly, he could summon all the witches of Webley Marsh and Dylan Common and get them to do what he wanted. And what did he have on them? Like, did they owe him money? Nobody knows, but as there were supposedly about 50 witches in that area, they must have got into a real pickle with 
with him. Well, yeah, also it must be quite difficult for him because if he only can summon them all at once, he's like, actually, I only needed you, Doreen, and you, Brenda. Yes, everyone everyone else, else, you can all go, sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, Jenkins was quite a useful guy to know if you needed a curse removing or an enchantment brewing or sure. anything like that. But a local farmer went to see him because he suspected his wife might have cheated on him. And he asked Jenkins if he could do anything to prove that that was happening. Yeah. So Jenkins asked the farmer to bring him the chamber pot from their bedroom, Ugh. which he did some muttering over oh, and gave it back. Bad. And the next day, the farmer went off to market as usual. But when he came home, he found his wife, greatly distressed, sitting on the chamber pot. She was completely stuck to it and unable to move. And stuck to her, holding her hand, and also completely stark naked, was the parish clerk. Now, I mean, I've heard of some awkward stuff in my time, but things can't get much more awkward than being stuck in your chamber pot and also attached to the person you're having an affair with. And then your husband comes home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Jenkins arrived uh, and said he would only lift the enchantment if the parish clerk paid the farmer some damage money, which he did. Yeah. But the clerk was not happy about the way Jenkins had embarrassed him, so he summoned him to the magistrates and accused him of witchcraft. Right. As the magistrates refused to believe that witches existed, they told Jenkins instead that he was exploiting ignorant people by making them believe silly things. Oh, Jenkins. But Jenkins then threatened to summon all the witches of Herefordshire yeah. to the court to prove his points. And the magistrates decided, actually, they didn't want to test the theory as the idea of 50 witches in the courtroom was a bit much. Yeah, well, even just Doreen and Brenda, they're enough. <laughs> I know, know, on their own. <laughs> anyway, the episode definitely didn't harm Jenkins' reputation, as you can probably imagine. See, now this is a genius example of bluff calling from <laughs> Jenkins the Enchanter. <laughs> this is fantastic. I mentioned some of Herefordshire's castles before, and there are some ghostly legends attached to some of them. Excellent. Croft Castle is haunted by the ghost of a girl called Lily Armstrong, also the legendary Welshman Owen Glendower, uh-huh. a headless coach driver and a baby which cries in the middle of the night. That's a lot of ghosts. It is, and all quite random disconnected ghosts, I think. Yeah, I wonder if they're friends. Yeah, oh. Owen Glendower and the crying baby? Not yeah, so sure. No. <laughs> While Goodrich Castle boasts the ghost of an Irish chieftain who died attempting to escape from the tower where he was held prisoner. Do we know how he died? I think he fell out. Oh no! <laughs> so you see a falling ghost. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a, a, a tragic escape attempt that went wrong. <laughs> There's another great ghost story from Helen's house in Much Markle, which is haunted by the ghost of a woman called Mehetable, who eloped with a working class man to the horror of her rich family. Oh, good for you, Mehetable. Unfortunately, her new husband died when she was only 20. And so she returned to her family because she didn't really know what else to do. And they locked her in her bedroom for the next 30 years. Excuse me? What a horrid thing to do to someone. Well, evidently they felt she'd brought such disgrace on them for marrying a working class man that she deserved it. Wow. Poor Mehetable, though, used her diamond ring to scratch an inscription on her window, which we can still see today. No way. And needless to say, her ghost haunts the room as well. And what does this inscription say? It is a part of virtue to abstain from what we love if it should prove our bane. Oh my goodness, that is so... So sad. I know. Poor I feel really sorry for her and not just for her dreadful name. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently she was known as Hetty. She's yeah. a little bit better. You'd go by Hetty, wouldn't you? I think you, you would. Um, hello, I'm Mahetta <laughs> And Hereford Cathedral has a phantom monk 
who was seen walking around in the cathedral precincts, last spotted in 1934, I think. Uh-huh. Although, if you have been to Hereford recently and had a sighting of the Phantom Monk, we would love to hear from you. Oh, yes, please. Still, I'm loving this. We've had wizards, we've had ghosts. I mean, how does Herefordshire score for fluffy, folky animals? Do we have a black dog, for example? Uh, we do, and it scores fairly highly, I'd say. Mm-hmm. The Tale of the King of Cats actually originates from the county. Have you heard that one? I don't think so. Well, there are versions of this across the folk tradition, but basically a lone traveller passes by a group of cats holding a formal royal funeral. When he reaches his destination, he tells his family what he saw on the way and their pet cat suddenly shouts out that I am the king of cats and rushes up the chimney and vanishes, never to be seen again. (laughs) It's just so random. Isn't it? That's the whole story. What? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is a pet cat which presumably had never shown any signs of speech nope. previously. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I mean, that would be quite a startling thing to have. <laughs> Evening, darling. I'm home for dinner. You'll never believe what I've seen. Suddenly the cat speaking and shooting up the chimney. What? <laughs> we also do have an excellent black dog in the vicinity of Hergest Court. A huge black phantom hound, which apparently inspired Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Hound of the Baskervilles. I mean, cool, but how many counties have said, oh, yeah, no, our black dog is the one that inspired the Hound of the Baskervilles, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) Some legends also name the black dog of her guest Black Vaughan. Black Vaughan. (laughs) And say that he's the spirit of an evil squire called Sir Thomas Vaughan, who was perhaps fortunately, beheaded during the Wars of the Roses. Right. But where his head fell, a huge black hound apparently leapt out, howling fit to curdle the blood and faced away. (laughs) Dog leapt out of his head? Of the pool of blood. Yeah, so basically out of his head. Yeah. He was hiding a demon dog in his skull. Yes, and raced off into the night, uh, some legends say carrying the head in its jaws. Outstanding. And even though Sir Thomas was buried, or what remained of him, the dog continued to bother the local area. Well, I mean, that does give new significance to the term bloodhound. Uh, (laughs) Well, quite. (laughs) We have another dog story from the Virgin's Stone, which is a standing stone near Sutton St. Nicholas. In 1642, an extraordinarily strong wind blew the stone a hundred yards through the air, and a huge black dog raced ahead of the stone as it flew, and then vanished, of course. Uh, What? (laughs) I mean, what's all that about? I have no idea. I mean, possibly the devil doing some more geographical redecorating and delegating to one of his doggy helpers. I mean, no explanation. What I'm coming away with is the impression that really random stuff happens in Herefordshire. <laughs> yes, the legends are all a little bit eccentric, yeah, aren't they're they? Mad. Yeah. We also have an excellent menacing jackdaw hailing from Western under Penyard. Okay. And uh, you don't often get menacing jackdaws, i got to say. I mean, crows, yes. Magpies, yes. And of course, ravens and rooks. But jackdaws, they normally get off quite lightly. So what does this one get up to? Well, a farmer had heard a rumour that there was an amazing treasure hidden underneath the ruins of Penyard Castle. So he did some investigating. As he would. He found two heavy iron doors underneath the ruins, but he couldn't open them by himself because of their weight. Mm. So he went went off and got his, some oxen and brought back 20 oxen to help him he did however heed the warnings about that terribly lonely place so he carried a splinter of wood from a yew tree with him and a whip made of rowan wood sure well the oxen heaved and pulled and the farmer eventually got the doors open sure enough there were two great big chests filled with treasure inside nice but sitting on top of the chests was a huge jackdaw which stared right at the farmer goodness like when we say huge jackdaw do we mean 
huge as in a very large jackdaw for jackdaw size or do we mean an actual giant jackdaw i mean i've been picturing it as sort of toddler size yeah okay yeah, all right so, so quite big quite big but not yeah. like big bird from sesame street no it's probably jackdaw. not that big although <laughs> what an image would, would be alarming wouldn't it <laughs> well this farmer was not afraid of birds because obviously he had to chase them away from his crops often yeah, so he yeah. flapped his arms and lunged for the chest of treasure but then the doors suddenly slammed shut almost crushing him and he heard the jackdaw call out had it not been for your quick and tree goad and your yew tree pin, you and your cattle had all been drawn in. Whoa, so he was a trap. Oh, mm. he's a trapdoor. And so the farmer undid his 20 oxen, rushed off and did not return to Penyard Castle ruins oh again. Oh, goodness. I don't like to think what the giant jackdaw might have done if he'd actually caught the farmer and all those cows. Maybe that's where all the treasure came from. Maybe he transmuted them from flesh into money. I mean, what does Big Bird do when you're alone with him? Oh, who knows? <laughs> who knows, yeah. Yeah, quite right. <laughs> a slightly nicer creature than that uh, murderous jackdaw is the mermaid of Marden, although she did cause a bit of trouble. Mm -hmm. The bell from Marden Church accidentally fell in the river lug when it had been taken down to be cleaned, and a local mermaid, perhaps reasoning that finders keepers, decided she wanted it. This is not the first time we've had a mermaid. Mermaids like bells. Bell. Just yes, really like them. Interesting. So she took hold of the bell and even when all the villagers worked together to try and pull it from her grasp, she would not let go and she swam away with it. <laughs> but she'd obviously got bored of it by 1848 because it was fished out when the villagers were cleaning the pond and you can see it in Hereford Museum today. Oh, well, I guess the years of hanging on to it had really... Taken their toll. Oh, Martin. Oh, it's my punnery ringing in your ears. Martin. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we visited historic Essex a couple of weeks ago, yes. we discussed the legend of the Canyon witches that there must always be six. Yes, we did. A similar legend pops up in Herefordshire around Garway Hill. There's a local saying which says that there will always be nine witches from the bottom of Orcop to the top of Garway as long as water flows. Oh, that's very interesting, isn't it? Mystical. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, these witches of Galway were supposedly responsible for helping local people and managed to bring a man's wife back from the dead. As in healthily back from the dead, or was she a zombie wife? Uh, well, unclear. I mean, I think she was mostly fine <laughs> okay, because yeah. the couple went on to have kids oh, okay, after her right. resurrection. Yeah. But the children were known in the area as the sons of the dead woman. Well, I mean... An excellent appellation to have. <laughs> yeah. yeah Hello, might... I'm Bertram. I'm the son of the dead woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm his brother, Frank. And I'm also a son of the dead woman. Apparently, though, those sons of the dead woman are the ancestors of some of the people who still live in Galway now. Yeah, all the really pale ones <laughs> who just yeah. start smacking their lips when there's brains nearby. I mean, the witches didn't question the ethics of what they were doing. They just wanted to give the man his wife back. Well, yeah, and that's understandable. He must have really, really, really liked his wife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Honestly, there's so much folklore from Herefordshire that I was really spoilt for choice. And when it comes around to your turn, there's still so much left. Phew. But I'll leave you with a couple more before I tell my story. Mm -hmm. One is the legend of King Hurler, a Britonic king of Herefordshire, which fits into the Rip Van Winkle subset of folktales. Oh, interesting. Basically, the story goes that King Hurler meets a fairy or dwarven king, not sure, who promises to attend Hurler's wedding with gifts if Hurler will attend his one year later. Sounds like a good deal. Hurler agrees, and the dwarf king comes to Hurler's wedding with lots of fabulous gifts. 
And a year later, sure enough, an invitation arrives to the Dwarf King's wedding. So Hurla looks through the gift list, chooses some nice things, goes off for a fun weekend with some of his closest buddies. Cool. They have to get to the wedding through a narrow cave in the side of a cliff. But that's all right, because it's an amazing party, best wedding ever, three days of solid fun and cake. Sure. When it's time for Hurla to leave, the Dwarf King gives him a gift of a small dog, telling him to carry it on his horse and not to let any of his friends dismount their horses before the dog has jumped down. This is intriguing. Yes. So as soon as Hurla and his friends leave the Enchanted Hill, some of the men jump off their horses. Oh, no! But the dog hasn't got down, and the men turn to dust and ashes in an instant. Idiots! Things get stranger. Hurla stays on horseback because the dog doesn't show any signs of jumping down and asks a passing shepherd if his wife the Queen's all right. The shepherd looks at him very strangely because he doesn't know who he's talking about and also Hurla's speaking the language of 200 years ago. Whoa! Sneaky fairy kings and their 200-year-long wedding parties. Awesome! And then, well, the dog decides it's happy on the horse and stays put. So Hurla and his companions are doomed to ride around for all eternity until the dog decides it's had enough. That is so dark. I mean, poor Hurla. It's an interesting example of the idea that time passes more slowly in the fairy realm. Like, we've seen that trope cropping up before, haven't we? Yeah, in fairy tales and all sorts of different traditions we get mm. that. There's another slightly similar one in Herefordshire, based around the village of Doorstone, where it's said that a mysterious road appears only under the light of the full moon. Awesome. Those that find it might venture along it and see this beautiful parallel world of the fairies around the landscape of Doorstone. And spirit guardians of the lost road may appear and share tales of Doorstone's history. But if you do venture along it, you have to be careful because if you travel too far, you may be lost between two worlds and may not be able to return to your own. Yeah, it's really sinister. I mean, there's a similar one in Middlesex, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. the lost village. Ghost roads um, in a lost village. There's always a flip side with fairies, isn't there? Yeah, it is. I feel bad for Hurler, though, because all he did was like give the guy a present and seemed to be like a nice chum. And now he's stuck living forever, riding around with a dog that won't get off his horse. <laughs> yeah, you'd think the dog would be caught short. <laughs> sooner or later. I just needs to go past the butchers a few times, <laughs> Yes. Smell of sausages <laughs> yeah. and that dog will be right off. Exactly. <laughs> now, our story today is about unlikely friendship and sticking by your friends even when they do terrible things. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The chickens pecked and fussed around Maud's ankles as she scattered grain for them. 
picking up the eggs as she went and putting them into her basket. Each morning she gathered the eggs for her mother to take to market, along with the cheeses she made and the wool she span. Everything they owned was for the same purpose, to be turned into money. Even so, the money Maud's mother brought home was only just enough to keep them, and if they hadn't been able to grow their own vegetables and eat their own eggs, they might have starved. They lived on the outskirts of Maudiford Village, in a little ramshackle cottage surrounded by a yard full of animals. Maud didn't go into the village much, and she'd never managed to make friends with anybody. She and her mother had to work so hard that they didn't have much time for anything else. Maud's father had died in the wars, so it was just the two of them, and the other village children didn't like Maud because she was small and quiet and strange. She did love the animals, but she'd learned the hard way not to get too attached to them. Most of them were destined for the same end, except the chickens, of course, but Maud's mother wouldn't allow her to take one into the house. Still, she talked to them and couldn't stop herself naming them all, even though she never knew which of their necks might be wrung to make a pot of stew. As she bent to pick up an egg, her eye was caught by something strange, nestled half under straw. Maud pulled the straw away from it. It was an egg, undoubtedly, but it was the strangest egg she had ever seen. It was much larger than a hen's egg and rough to the touch, as though it were covered in tiny little chips of stone. But the strangest thing of all was that it was a bright, vivid green, like meadow grass in summer. Maud put the egg into her apron pocket and waited until her mother was outside milking the goat before she went back into the cottage. She left the basket of hen's eggs on the table, but she ran into her little bedroom and put the strange green egg onto the windowsill where the sun could shine on it. She didn't want her mother to see it, just in case she tried to sell it at the market. For a long while, the egg did nothing at all. Maud collected eggs and cleaned the cottage and made the dinner each day as she usually did. But each night when she went to bed, she sat with the egg in her lap, stroking it with her fingers and talking to it, telling it everything she'd done that day and how the world around her looked. More than anything, she wished and wished for the egg to hatch. One morning when spring was in the air and the world was fresh and bright with blossom and birdsong, Maud woke to find that her dearest wish was coming true. There was a tiny crack in the shell of the egg, which spread and widened as she watched. Maud could hardly contain her excitement as the shell finally split apart and a tiny head poked itself out. The creature hatching from the egg was no hen. It was not even a bird at all. Although it was as small and delicate as a sparrow chick, it had a long, scaly snout and four tiny feet with glittering dark claws no bigger than poppy seeds. It had a tail which flicked and lashed like a newt's, and on its back, shimmering translucent wings sprouted. It was as green as the egg it had climbed out of, and oh, it was pretty. Hello, said Maud, holding out her hand to the baby dragon. It nuzzled its snout into her palm. It was the most adorable thing she had ever seen. The dragon flicked out a tiny bright green tongue and started to lick Maud's fingers. She thought it must be hungry, so she ran to the kitchen and brought back a small bowl of milk. She watched with delight as the little dragon licked up every last drop. 
Maud had never known such happiness. She finally had a pet of her very own to love and care for and bring up and to tell all her thoughts and secrets. The dragon was happy too. After it had finished its meal, it climbed onto Maud's lap and would have sat there for hours if she hadn't had to leave it in her room so she could do her daily household tasks. But as soon as her mother had left for market, Maud went to see the dragon and talked to it and played with it and had a wonderful time. That night she took the dragon into bed with her. It curled in the hollow between her shoulder and her neck and she stroked the tip of its nose until they both fell asleep. Maud's happiness was short-lived. She was woken the next morning by a scream. Maud, get up! There's a terrible worm in your bed! Maud opened her sleepy eyes and saw her mother standing at the foot of her bed, pointing at the dragon and wearing a look of terror. It's not a terrible worm, she said. It's just a baby and it's very friendly. Look! She lifted up the dragon and petted it, scratching it gently under its wings. The dragon made a sound like a cat purring. Monster! Maud's mother screeched. Maud, people will think we're witches! You'd better drown it in the duck pond! No! said Maud, cradling the dragon tight against her chest. It just hatched from its egg. It's harmless, I promise. See, it's only small. The dragon opened its glittering eyes wide and wrapped its tail around Maud's fingers. It needs me, Maud said. Please, can I keep it? I'm not having it in this house, her mother said. But if you won't take my advice and drown it, well, you better take it into the forest. I mean it, Maud. That beast means trouble for sure and I want no part of it. Maud was very unhappy about having to take the dragon into the forest when it was so young and couldn't look after itself. She felt responsible that she'd hatched it from its egg. She was all the mother the poor creature had, wasn't she? But her mother said that if Maud wouldn't put the dragon out to fend for itself, she would take it and drown it in the duck pond. So Maud finally agreed. But she hunted in the forest until she found a cave which she thought would be perfect to hide the dragon in and protect it from wolves and foxes. The cave was dark, but it was warm, and Maud left a brimming bowl of fresh water from the river and a clutch of berries she'd picked on the way. She wove the dragon a cosy nest from twigs and wool she'd secretly taken from the spinning basket and promised to come back the next day. Maud hurried through her chores as fast as she could, and by midday she was running through the forest towards the cave with some milk and some cheese she'd sneaked from the store cupboard. The dragon was thrilled to see her. It frolicked and tumbled for her and ate crumbs of cheese from the palm of her hand. She stayed talking to the dragon for as long as she dared, and then she reluctantly turned her steps towards home. She felt sad at having to leave the dragon alone in the cave, but in her heart there was a warm kernel of happiness because she knew she had finally found a friend. Things went on in this way for some time, with Maud creeping out to visit the dragon every day, bringing it fresh milk and any little treat she could manage too. But strange things were starting to happen. For a start, the dragon was growing. It was growing much faster than Maud herself, in fact. It was now the length of a dog and its small fluttering wings had become thick and powerful. If such things were possible, its green scales seemed to be becoming even brighter and more vivid. One day, when the dragon was the size of a calf, 
and Maud was very nearly a young woman. The dragon no longer wanted the milk and little bits of food Maud brought it. It paced the cave angrily, lashing its tail, which had developed vicious spikes. I know it's not much, but I don't know what more I can bring, Maud said. My mother's frail now, you know that, and she's fussy with it, and she'll notice if I try and take any more food than I should. The dragon made a sound like the screech of a dying owl. It was very unpleasant. We don't know what to tell you, said Maud. When I'm a woman grown and can make my own way, we'll live together and share everything, but we're not there yet. But the dragon roared, and Maud was almost frightened. Although it spoke no human language, she could understand its meaning well enough after all this time, and the look in its eyes seemed to say that the time Maud spoke of was not coming soon enough, and perhaps it would have to take matters into its own hands, or rather, claws. The dragon's claws, incidentally, were now very long, black as pitch, and curved like the blade of a sickle. Maud left with her mind in a whirl and her heart in a muddle, wondering what on earth she ought to do. She hadn't come up with an answer by the time she went back to the cave the next day, but the dragon who was waiting for her was a different dragon. Instead of the dull tinge which had spread over its glittering scales, it was glossy and green as a canopy of leaves. If possible, it seemed to have grown even bigger. It ate a few of the berries Maud had brought along, but it certainly didn't seem to be starving anymore. When Maud sat down with her mother that night over a pot of stew, her mother's eyes were wide and her tongue rich with news. Talks all over the village, she said. There's been a terrible attack. So many of Farmer Beach's sheep all killed. Their bellies ripped out as though by some great beast. All the good meat scooped out like something was eaten from a bowl. They're saying it must have been wolves, but it sounds to me like the work of the devil. Maud turned pale and looked down, her spoon clattering into her untouched chicken stew. She clenched her fists in her lap, desperately hoping that her mother wouldn't remember all those years ago when she'd hatched and helped the green dragon. When she next went to visit the dragon, she asked it outright if it had killed Farmer Beach's sheep. The dragon, sitting on a pile of leaves and flowers it seemed to have gathered, looked extremely pleased with itself. You must be careful, Maud said. If the people in the village were to see you, we don't know what might happen. Please don't go there again. Can't you fish in the river for salmon? The dragon snorted and spat a gobbet of acid yellow saliva onto the floor of the cave which sizzled where it landed, making it very clear what it thought of the idea of eating fish. All Maud could do was repeat her pleas to be careful and throw her arms around the dragon and hug it as she usually did, but she had a horrible feeling that her wishes had fallen on deaf ears. Her mother was waiting at the door to greet her when she got back to the cottage. Where have you been, Maud? She said, looking around fearfully. Come inside. It's dangerous to be out. You might be killed where you stand and scooped out like a sheep. Maud's worst fear had come true. Her friend the dragon had been seen, and things had gone from bad to worse in a very short space of time. Farmer Beach had caught it tearing into his prize bullock with its three rows of razor-sharp teeth, and when he'd run towards it, shouting and waving his arms, 
the dragon had eaten him as well. There was no middle left to him at all, Maud's mother said, only legs and a head. Farmer Beach's son had seen it from the turnip field and heard the dragon let out a great, satisfied belch as it flew away. So you must stay indoors, Maud, her mother said, and we'll bring the chickens and the goat inside just for now. She darted a quick glance out of the window as though she feared that the dragon would swoop down at any moment. Her mother didn't go to market the next day, so Maud had to wait until night fell to sneak out of the house to see the dragon. She wasn't frightened because she knew the dragon would never harm her, but she knew that trying to convince her childhood friend not to kill people would not be an easy task. It was worse than she feared. The dragon didn't listen, and it even turned its scaly back, now wide as a riverboat, and wouldn't let Maud give it the usual cuddle. The situation in Maudiford grew worse and worse. Maud was distraught, for she had no idea how to stop the dragon going on murderous rampages, and while the dragon was happy to eat livestock, it was just as happy to gobble up any people who tried to get in its way. It was brazen, flying about in broad daylight and snacking on anything or anyone it fancied. Every time Maud saw the dragon, she begged it to stop, but the dragon just snorted and tossed its head as if to say that the person has to eat. The villagers of Mordiford were sick at heart too. Every time they tried to trap or attack the dragon or chase it away from their animals, someone was killed. No human person seemed to be a match for the ever-growing green dragon, especially with only simple pitchforks and farm tools as weapons. Eventually, some of the men travelled to the great house of the Garstone family, a few miles outside Mordiford, to tell the squire about the goings-on with the dragon. Unfortunately for them, the squire was a deeply practical person who didn't believe in dragons. He suggested that the villagers must have been standing too near mouldy crops, so they were imagining local wolves to have scales and wings and fly in the air, and told them to be on their way, build better fences, and perhaps take more water with their ale next time. The squire was dismissive, but his son, Bartholomew Garstone, stood at the back of the great hall and listened to every last word. He had read romances in French and grown his hair long and curling, and the dearest wish of his heart was to perform a brave and courtly feat, perhaps to attract the notice of a benevolent king or the attention of a beautiful maiden, or both. Although the villagers left Garstone Hall in deep disappointment, ideas were flying round Bartholomew's head like bats in a church tower. It seemed to him as though the villagers had been struggling to best the dragon due to their lack of weapons and equipment, although he thought it might also have had something to do with their lack of intelligence, chivalry and curling hair. So he made his preparations, strapping on the best armour from his father's war chest and arming himself with shield and lance. He saddled the finest destrier in the stables and decked it with heroic plumes, and then he rode forth from Garstone without telling his father where he was going. Along the road to Mordiford, whose house should he reach first but that of Maud and her mother? As he rode up, Maud was in the yard distractedly feeding the chickens and worrying about the dragon. "'Excuse me, fair maid,' said Bartholomew Garstone, flipping up the visor of his splendid helmet and bowing low over his horse's neck. "'I'm looking for a terrible beast that has desecrated the farmland hereabouts. Might you have seen such a foul creature?' Maud went white and trembled all over, 
because she knew why he had come, and his lance was sharp and his armour tightly plated, and she feared terribly what might come. Bartholomew mistook her fear for shyness and came closer, thinking that here would be an excellent chance to prove his bravery. For Maud, despite her loneliness and strangeness and conversations with a bloodthirsty dragon, had grown up to be very pretty. She could only stammer a reply to him, however, but Bartholomew was in no way discouraged and vowed to come back for Maud later, once he'd slain the dragon and made his name as a hero. As soon as his fine horse with its fancy nodding plume had vanished down the lane, Maud ran as fast as she could to the forest and picked her way through briar and bramble to the dragon's cave. As soon as she ducked into its dark entrance, she could see that it was empty, and there was a curious finality about the way it appeared, as though her friend had left forever. Despite the burning in her lungs, she turned and ran back to the village of Mordiford as fast as she could. She could see her friend flying overhead before she got there, its powerful wings beating and carrying it towards the outlying farms. But galloping below the dragon, his destrier's hooves like thunder on the hard earth, was Bartholomew Garstone, lance pointed and shield raised. Maud called for the dragon to fly higher to get back. The dragon heard Maud and swerved. Then it opened its mouth and belched out a plume of flame intended to roast the young knight like a pig upon a spit. The flames never hit the knight, for his huge shield protected him from the blast, and his armoured glove prevented his hand from being burned as he held the shield. It seemed that the dragon had no more fire to breathe, for it swooped low over Bartholomew instead and opened its jaws wide, ready to bite through his middle. But his armour scraped and clicked against the dragon's teeth, and the dragon made a moaning sound as it felt the pain of its very first toothache. There was a worse pain to come, though, for while the dragon was howling at its damaged teeth, Bartholomew Garstone raised his lance and drove it hard into the dragon's soft underbelly. Maud let out an agonised scream and ran to the body of her fallen friend. Never fear, dear lady, Bartholomew said grandly. I have slain the terrible beast. You've killed my only friend, Maud said, and pushed the young man so angrily that he stumbled into a cowpat and sat down hard on his behind. Maud threw herself down next to the dragon and wrapped her arms around it. Her tears fell onto its scales, which were rapidly losing their bright green hue and dulling into a misty grey. Its great dark eyes blinked up at her, and Maud saw that the dragon was weeping too. Before the sun had closed its eye to dream, the dragon was dead. Maud was inconsolable. She soon left Maudiford behind, for there was nothing for her there anymore. As for Bartholomew Garstone, while the villagers were grateful to him for ridding them of the ravenous dragon, he had nothing but terrible luck for the rest of his days. He never met a king, and even the long curling hair that he'd been so proud of fell out before his 25th birthday, leaving him as bald as his father the squire. The people of Mordeford painted the dragon in their church as a reminder of what had happened, and when the women went to the river to wash clothes, they killed every newt they saw for fear one might grow into another dragon. Maud found another home, where she lived alone for the rest of her days. She kept all sorts of animals, goats and geese and dogs and cats, and of course, plenty of chickens. 
Every day when she fed them, she kept her eyes open for another special egg which might hatch into a dragon, but she never did find one. And there you have it. So, Martin, what did you think of the fearsome dragon of Mordifud? Well, it was very cute, but it was very sad, Eleanor. Why did you kill the dragon? Because it happened, Martin. Oh. That's what happened. The dragon was killed, I'm afraid. I kind of feel bad for Maud. I, I mean, feel awful for Maud, poor thing. a lonely little girl, and she made a friend, and then her friend became a teenager and started eating everything, <laughs> and then it got stabbed up by a silly curly-haired knight. Yeah, it's a little bit like the John Lewis Christmas advert, that story. <laughs> I was thinking that as I retold it. You know where the uh, the boy gets a pet Venus flytrap yeah, that ruins yeah. Christmas? It's a little bit like that. Also, <laughs> Only the little child loves it. <laughs> I also think that it's an interesting reflection that if you go back to my sock bird worm story and then compare it to this story, we've got reflections of our perhaps different tones in our brains because they're quite similar stories really well, i suppose they are in a way aren't they <laughs> there is no grave um i was very taken with the idea of the sockburn worms grave sure. uh, all curled up yeah. um, there's no grave for the dragon of mordiford but they there was a painting in the church which i think in the 19th century was painted over because the priest thought it was idolatrous and shouldn't, shouldn't be in the church but I think they've managed to uncover some of it now well, and it was cool. a beautiful very uh, long-tailed green I think I think it's a wyvern actually I think creepy it's a, a two-legged creepy yeah. dragon yeah and I like the idea of obviously the egg being found amongst all of the other eggs because that's a whole other mystery mm, isn't how did it? it get there mm. who left a dragon egg with all the hens and then her comedy mother outstanding the idea that she should be afraid of being hollowed out like a sheep uh, i almost ruined your take of your story because i started i didn't chuckling. notice you sort of snuffling <laughs> i was it was very funny so yeah. i also wanted to include the idea that it could have been in the village's imagination so yeah. a sensible squire who um you know knew about ergot poisoning sure sure <laughs> and then of course actually the legend about women killing newt because they thought they might be little dragons. That's true too. Oh, Apparently yeah. that used to happen. Really? Yeah, right up until into the 19th century or so. That is so, so interesting. Well, thank you so much, Eleanor. Are you ready to talk correspondence? Yes, I am. Okay, well, this week we've had not one but two new reviews. Oh, that's awesome. Not only does that mean we've had new reviews for three weeks in a row, but that we've had four reviews in three weeks. Holy moly. Yes, absolutely brilliant. And I'm very much hoping next week we'll make it four weeks in a row. Still, the first one comes from Verbena on iTunes, who writes... Joyous and delightful. A great discovery, and I'm ashamed it took me so long to find and follow. I've loved deep diving into the county episodes, which have answered so many questions I've had, but never found answers to myself. I particularly enjoy the retellings of myths and legends, peppering episodes, proper fireside stuff. And finally, the mini marathon 12 Days of Christmas was a delight. Both an antidote to the commercial Christmasness I loathe, yet brilliantly festive at the same time. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Vivina. The pleasure is ours. And thank you, especially for taking the time to write such a lovely review. Mm -hmm. And don't think twice about having only recently found us. We've been going for less than a year, so you can be entirely excused. Oh, most definitely. And the second one is from Soft G on Apple Podcasts, who writes, Enthralling! This absolute jewel of a podcast came up as a recommendation in my feed just in time for Yuletide, after which it was my undiluted pleasure to binge the voluminous back catalogue 
dog most of the way through a cross-country drive. Martin and Eleanor's shared enthusiasm for arcane history and lore shines, as do their talents for spinning yarns and captivating delivery of original writing, spanning genres from folk and gothic horror to adaptations of traditional or mythic tales and beyond. I love how they generously invite listeners to join in what I imagine to be a lively and wide-ranging fireside conversation, one at which I hope to warm my spirits for many seasons to come. Hands down, my favourite imaginary audio friends. Oh my goodness, Softy, we are so happy to be your imaginary audio friends. We really You're are. so welcome <laughs> around the campfire, as is everybody. And well, that was just such a nice review. I'm left a little bit speechless. It really is a very nice review. Thank you, Softy. And please, dear listener, if you haven't already, do hop onto iTunes or Apple Podcasts and write us a review. We will read it out. And wherever you listen to us, whether that's Spotify, Amazon, wherever it might be, please drop us some stars or a thumbs up to help other people to find the podcast. And to join our lovely fireside gathering. Mm. There's quite a few of us now, but there's plenty of space for more. Speaking of which, thank you very much to everyone who has been gronking from the rooftops, telling their friends and colleagues and other strangers they encounter about the podcast. We enormously appreciate your every endeavour. We certainly do. And we've also had some gorgeous emails this week. We love receiving emails from you telling us about what you've been up to and what the world's like where you are. So please keep those coming. They're so nice to read. Definitely. And also special thanks to Donna, Tony and Kurt for your lovely Facebook comments, Patricia for the Raven video Mm. and to Philippa for her message about Dick Turpin's horse. Yes. So Philippa wrote to us to say, Hello, lovelies. Just listen to the Rutland episode with my eldest, and she's implored me to send you the following link while pointing out that, though Dick Turpin did indeed come from Essex, his horse was not called Black Bess. As you probably know, Horrible Histories is never wrong, and as a result, my kids can be quite pedantic about H.H. Facts. What was it called? Well, see, the link Philippa sent was the Horrible Histories song, and we do love a bit of Horrible Histories, but I'm going to say... Philippa's eldest daughter, I've got a quibble with you here. Oh, be careful, Martin. You don't know how dangerous Philippa's children are. They could ride to Sussex overnight and shoot you with pistols. Well, hopefully they won't and will instead hear me out because... Dick Turpin was, all told, an absolutely horrible man. A murderer, a rapist, a horse thief. He once poured a pan of boiling water over an old man's head, then killed his wife and threw her body into their fireplace. Oh no, how awful. Yeah, and we know that he had dozens and dozens of horses over the years. We don't know the names of a single one of them. But Dick Turpin's reputation as a dandy highwayman and romantic hero came primarily from an 1834 hit novel by a man called Harrison Ainsworth called Rookwood. Have you ever read Rookwood? I have not. No, neither have I. But in that book, one of Turpin's horses is called Black Bess. Off the back of that, tons of popular ballads and poems and stories sprung up around Dick Turpin, where in a manner of folklore, his horse became known as Black Bess in pretty much all of them. Well, that's very interesting. And to be clear, you're not saying that Dick Turpin's horse definitely was called Black Bess, no. but neither are you saying that we can definitely say he never owned a horse called Black Bess. That's exactly what I'm saying. And because Dick Turpin is so synonymous with having a horse called Black Bess in folklore, I'm going to say to Philippa's no doubt delightfully pedantic children that actually, on this one, horrible histories might be wrong, even if that song is an absolute 
banger. Although I'm going to put a word in here for Born to Rule, which I think is maybe their best. No, it's going to be the Charles Dickens one. Smith's parody. It's so good. (laughs) Yeah, it's very good. A lot of them are very, very good. Anyway, Philippa, thank you for your message. And fingers crossed your children don't stop our carriage on the highway and rob us for everything we own. Well, indeed. A special thank you to everyone who's already sent their entries into our A Thousand Word Flash Fiction Contest. We've had loads of entries this week, but please keep them coming and send them through to 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com. Yes, please. That's a thousand words of original fiction about anything folkloric you fancy. And we'll read our favourites out on a special episode after the end of Series 3. As for our likers, commenters and super sharers this week, special thank yous go to Eric, Dominic, Tony, Craig and David on Facebook, Harry Wibier and Where Will You Go, Fired in the Amber Valley, Norfolk Heritage Hunters and Gary Pearson on Instagram. And of course, Paco, Lawrence and Mystic Moon, along with Rihanna Louise, Larry Jones and our new podcast friends, Eerie Essex on X. Yeah, we've been following Bethan on Twitter for ages, but never actually listened to the Eerie Essex podcast. We're binging it at the moment. Yes. Couldn't recommend it more highly. And thanks so much to Bethan and Ailsa. You guys are awesome. And of course, to join in the fun on social media, flap your ink dark wings over to facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast, Instagram at three ravens podcast and three ravens pod on X. Mash the join button with your beak. You know you want to. (laughs) Also join the Three Ravens podcast group on Facebook. Special hello to Artemis Swan for her lovely post on there. Welcome. So, Martin, where will we be wandering to next week? And what sort of folky goodness can we look forward to? Well, next week we're headed to Derbyshire, a land of megaliths, peeing giants, naughty witches and chilling spectres. But before then, this Thursday, we've got our brand new episode of Something Wicked, all about Alice Kittler. And who's Alice Kittler? Well, she was the first witch condemned in Ireland, leaving a trail of four dead husbands, a vast fortune and a very angry bishop. It's a good one. Sounds like a good one. Well, it will be. It's a crazy story. Excellent. Well, until then, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to the Eat, Sleep, Live Herefordshire website, The Folklore of Herefordshire by Ella Mary Leather, and Herefordshire Folk Tales by David Phelps. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaughs. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such leemen, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.